You are listening to season four of the Bitcoin Takeover podcast, a 10 part series in which hardware wallet makers and breakers get interviewed. Before I introduce this episode's guests, let's hear a few words from the show's sponsors. LXMI is a European cryptocurrency exchange whose name is inspired by Lakshmi, the Hindu goddess of wealth, good fortune, and prosperity. It's one of the regulated and legal cryptocurrency exchanges. On LXMI, you can buy bitcoins with most fiat currencies, and you can also do trading with top altcoins. They follow the Not Your Keys, Not Your Bitcoins philosophy with their integrated non-custodial wallet, which helps you manage your own private keys. So if you're into trading, then you don't have to worry about having your crypto frozen by whatever political decisions, since you're empowered to hold and move your coins whenever you wish. It's great to have new players like LXMI that respect your financial sovereignty. LXMI is launching in 2020, and for more information, please check out lxmi.io. If you're not into trading, it's recommended to move your coins to a hardware wallet or some other form of cold storage, and in this episode, you're about to find out why. Please keep in mind that this is just an ad for a sponsor of the show. It's not meant to serve as financial advice, and you're responsible to do your own research before buying anything and act according to your own decisions. Embrace your financial sovereignty with agency and precaution. Femex is a Bitcoin exchange with derivative trading options, which focuses on speed, robustness, and maximum uptime. Built by former Morgan Stanley executives, it manages to bring simple and accessible Bitcoin trading. In 2020, Femex will also add S&P 500 stocks, stock indexes, Forex, commodities, and more. Sign up today at femex.com slash bonus and receive a bonus of up to $72. Please keep in mind that this is just an ad for a sponsor of this show. It's not meant to serve as financial advice. You're responsible to do your own research before buying anything and act according to your own decisions. Embrace your financial sovereignty with agency and precaution. Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 4 of the Bitcoin Takeover Podcast. I am Vlad and I'm honored today to have as a guest one of the makers of the Ledger Hardware Wallet. On Twitter, his name is BTC Chip, but his real name is Nicholas Baca. And he is one of the innovators in the space, and it's always a privilege to get the insights from a person who actually builds hardware wallets and has innovative ideas. And I think your position right now is head of innovation at Ledger. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's correct. So thanks, Vlad, for hosting me and thanks for the service that you are providing to the community because the hardware wallet review was quite nice. And now, I mean, having each of the company able to speak on a podcast, speak freely and give more details about the hardware, it's kind of, yeah, I think it's providing a very uh, useful service to the community. So yes, I'm head of innovation at Ledger. Uh, so maybe I can speak a little bit more about what I did. So um, I'm, well, I co-founded Ledger in 2000. 15 because the company was created then uh, let's say that i have been playing with smart cards for a very long time so i have been playing with that technology for about 20 years i think uh, i was there when well we created the first nfc card so that's uh, that's a very long time ago uh, at some point i got bored of playing with passports uh, credit cards sim card and stuff and well i thought that what drove me into creating several companies and into creating ledger is that I think that the smart card is a great piece of technology because it's really designed to protect your secrets. Uh, but in the end, well, it's not your secret, so that's part of the problem. Uh, smart cards are very great at holding your bank secrets, your um, phone provider secrets, but it's never your secret, and that's something I wanted to change. So I wanted to find a way to open the technology and to make it available for people who would like to write their own applications and in the end to hold their their own stuff. So that that's really uh, what drove me into into creating Ledger. So that and of course uh, getting interested in Bitcoin. So when I had Bitcoin, I had tech, I had this technology in hand, and I thought that it was a perfect mix. And definitely, if we wanted Bitcoin to to take over, so I think that the topic of the podcast, uh, we needed to have a way to to host keys properly and safely. And well, that's really the, that's really the reason why we started everything. And since the company grew a lot, so well, even faster than I than I believed. So we we took uh, well, we took a, a wide, very wide ride in 2017. I guess like all the other companies. Uh, then we we it was a little bit more quiet after that. But still, I mean, the space is uh, quite exciting, and it's always uh, well, it's always great to see. I mean, every day there is something new, and it's a, it's a great space to be in. Oh, yes. And I must confess that the first hardware wallet that I owned was the Ledger Nano S. And one of the reasons why I still like it is that it looks exactly, and I mean identical, to one of my USB flash drives. If you would see them one next to the other and I scratched the logo of Ledger, you would only be able to tell them apart if you open it and see that it has buttons and it doesn't have a mail connector and it has that screen. But otherwise, you, you can just bypass airport security or something, some kind of, you know, search just by carrying that as opposed to the Trezor. Sometimes it looks like the remote which opens your car, right? And unless you own a car and people know that you own a car, it doesn't really make sense to carry that around. And with the keep key, that's even more complicated because it's bulky. And with the cold card, for example, it it sort of looks like a calculator, but it has a very small screen. And that's the first de detail that gives away that it's a strange kind of calculator. And it also doesn't have buttons for operations. So from this perspective of OPSEC, I think you nailed the design. 
Yeah, thank you, thank you. And and regarding OPSEC, I would like to say that you can you can even push it a little bit further if you want, because uh, well, I will be talking about our operating system, our approach to security, and the way we split the operating system and applications in the in the hardware, because uh, we are the only vendor to have a multi-application operating system, so on which you can decide which application you load and which application you remove. Uh, but let's say that if you want to to push your OPSEC a bit further, for example, when we, you are working through customs, uh, you can just have your FIDO application loaded in, so your second factor application loaded on your ledger, and then you can perfectly discuss that and say, okay, yeah, well, look at that. I mean, that is a completely legitimate use case. And people would have to take the hardware wallet and to install additional applications to know that you are uh, actually holding Bitcoins. So that, that's that's something, I mean, that's a way to make your OPSEC even a little bit better if you want. And of course, I mean, for the other hardware wallets, you can also play with, uh, with your passphrase and you can always keep a small amount, I mean, in a different passphrase. I think it's a, I think it's a good practice to have if you want to, if you want to make your upside a little bit better. So of course, um, that, that sort of tell, uh, will tell a way that you are interested in crypto, we are interested in crypto. Uh, you can't hide the fact that you have a Bitcoin application on the device because uh, on other devices, you have the firmware and the applications are mixed uh, in some way, uh, but still, well, you have additional options. So I think it's interesting to see in that space that pretty much everybody thought about upsec because yeah it's uh, yeah, i mean it's important in it's important it's important if you want to if you want to conceal your your privacy and if you want to conceal your assets also before i move on to the first question i gotta say that the previous podcast which i recorded and chronologically is going to be the one after this one so episode five with mm -hmm. brian alds of bill fuddle he had lots of kind words to say about the ledger and even said that he uses one on a daily basis so there's the praise hey thank 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 you and thanks to thanks to everybody i mean who likes the device and thanks to everybody who criticizes the device i mean because user feedback is what really drives us uh, to and drives me to innovate. Uh, one of the big complaints I had about my previous chart is that when I was designing well SIM cards, passports, and the stuff, is that in the end you never talk to your end users, so you don't you don't really know what to improve. And I would say that we made uh, much more much more improvements in the field of smart cards in general in five years. I mean, now that Ledger has been created, uh, thanks to all the user feedback and critics that we got uh, than what I did in the past. In the past 15 years, so that that's, yeah, the field is the field is also great for that. And consumer electronics, uh, secure consumer electronics, is kind of a new field of business. I mean, that's uh, how I would generalize hardware wallets, but it's a great place to be. Oh yeah, and uh, speaking of, I wrote that three-part series in Bitcoin Magazine about hardware wallets, mm -hmm. and I really appreciated the way you reacted as a company to what I wrote there. I mean, you could slam me on social media and say that <laughs> I'm wrong and possibly point out alternatives to the solutions that I found, but you just improved and sent me an email and we're like, okay, so we have added to this Don John. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, it's, it's Don John, it's Don John, but yeah, I know it's pretty, it's pretty hard to, to pronounce if you are not a French guy. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. You added all the list of hacks that have been mm -hmm. fixed and you have updated your bounty program. And these two points have been raised during the yes. article. And in less than one month, you have fixed it. And you didn't even tell me in advance. You just told me, okay, we have fixed these. And that's something I appreciate. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, we were we were in the process. Yeah, we were in the process of doing it, but of course, yeah, speaking about it just pushed us a little bit, pushed us a little bit to move further into that. But that, that's, I mean, that's the way that's the way you improve. I mean, you don't improve by spamming people on social media. I mean, you improve by by listening to feedback. I mean, well, sometimes the feedback is really bad. Then okay, you can you can just stop listening. But well, insulting people never really uh, serves any purpose. I think. Well, even if sometimes, well, on Twitter, you wonder if uh, what people are doing, but uh, that's, that's, well, I mean, th that's another topic. Okay, so before anyone suspects that this is some sort of paid interview in which I just <laughs> randomly praise Ledger all the time, let me get to the first question, which is about hardware wallets in general, and why should yes. anyone use them as opposed to something else like a paper wallet, a brain wallet? <laughs> I spoke sure. to Trace Mayer. And he said that mm -hmm. he never uses hardware wallets and just stores his keys with Armory on mm -hmm. a computer which never gets connected to the internet. And he <laughs> spreads it geographically across multiple regions. But why should anyone buy a hardware wallet and use yeah. it? No, sure. Uh, th thanks for this question because, for sure, it's—I uh, mean, for sure—it's something that much that a lot of people wonder when they decide to spend a little bit more money to hold your money. I mean, that's, that's something that you that you want to do usually. Uh, I think that for people who perfectly know what they're doing, who have a very strong upside and who are absolutely confident in in their process, I mean, well, they can they can of course have something that they keep offline and that 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 they manage that they manage their way. Um, the idea is that if you have a hardware wallet, in my opinion, it's the best way uh, to create a secure setup. So to, to both uh, hodl your crypto, so that that's, of course, that's one of the main use cases, and use it. And I would say that using it is really the complex part. I mean, because if you want to use a paper wallet correctly, or if you want to use uh, crypto that you hold on an offline computer, you have to think about all the steps where things can go wrong, and you have a lot of them. So especially uh, if you are using a paper wallet, well, any kind of malware can, of course, steal your crypto when you are using it because you are putting your keys into memory, and you have plenty of ways to, to extract things from memory of a computer. If you have been following uh, the recent hacks on, on Intel architecture, for example, you know that there are multiple ways of spying on what the, what the CPU is doing. So you had you add things. I mean, I think the most recent one is Zombie Load, but previous, uh, previous. I mean, apart from that, you have Spectre before, and you had all those series of very interesting hacks. So when people manage to extract data from memory, um, but that, that's well, that's maybe that maybe the most complex one. But then, if you have an offline computer, you have to think about. Uh, how you are going to update it because it doesn't mean that it's secure because it's offline. Well, if you have something that that's, I mean, if you have if you have an updated software on your computer, you might still need to update it in order to avoid well leaking data or in order to avoid, for example, feeding it something that would cause a different that would cause that would cause a different outcome when you decide to sign. So you have a lot of things to check and you have a lot of boxes to to verify if you want to do your own self-custody. And I would say that hardware wallets make that much easier. And that's really the point in having one, in my opinion. If you decide to hold your crypto, so first, uh, it provides you with a good entropy. So you know that you are going to choose your keys properly and that you don't wake up one morning and with all your funds disappearing because, well, the first um, the first entropy that you picked was bad, so which is something that can happen if you are 
using a software a software wallet or if you are using something in an environment that you didn't really that you didn't really control and then when you use your crypto you can verify what you're signing and verifying what you're signing i would say is really the key point of hardware wallet so you can make sure that what you are doing is really what you wanted to do and this is getting a bit more complex so we'll have an opportunity to discuss that in uh, in multi-signature settings uh, but i think that the, the key is really the important part of hardware wallets is to put you a little bit more in control uh, with an interface which is quite easy to use so if you want to pick something if you want to if you want to get into crypto hardware wallets are the best way um, to make sure that first your crypto won't disappear and that you will be ready to use to to make um, to make really a full use of the most creative uh, use case of crypto that can be coming because they are ready hardware wallets are ready for are ready for holding and they are ready for using and even in new ways um, that are not that do not exist yet right so why should a newbie who just got into bitcoin and decided to spend 100 dollars on hardware wallet choose a mm -hmm. ledger and when going for a ledger which model is best suited for the needs of a beginner well, all, all hardware wallets, I mean, are interesting. Uh, we offer, I would say that we offer the best mix of, uh, of openness, flexibility, and security, uh, especially if you consider a threat model which involves uh, physical attacks. So we are pretty much, we are pretty much, I would say, the, the, the one dealing the most with, uh, with physical attacks um, by choosing a smart card chip so in, order to, in order to implement our logic. Um, I, I can I can speak a little bit more about the different the different uh, things the different things I mentioned. So the openness here, um, we have probably the largest numbers of third-party developers today. So we have people, uh, of course, designing support for different coins. So I'm not going to mention different coins on this podcast, but let's say that if you want to design Bitcoin extensions as well, I mean, for example, if you want to design your own uh, Bitcoin application to to exactly cater to your use case that's something you can do so we can have some people playing with that in the future um, regarding the flexibility so we have an operating system today uh, with um, which allows you to isolate applications so you can basically load any kind of application on your device and you know that applications are not going to um, interact with each other so each application is really independent and regarding security, so the threat model that we have in mind is that we are building everything on the, on the, on the, sh on the shoulders of technology that has been the gold standard for, I would say, 40 years in banking, uh, um, pay TV, identity, and other industries which are absolutely critical. So by doing that, we know that we offer the best possible physical security. I mean, not because we designed it from scratch, uh, but because we rely on something that's, that's most, that, well, that a lot of other people have been using in the past. Uh, so for really know when, how you are going to use your crypto. So are you going to hold all your crypto? Are you going to use them? Are you going to work all the time with your hardware wallet in your pocket, for example, which is a, well, which can be a very viable use case. You know that by choosing Ledger, uh, you have a solution that protects you against um, against well those kind of possible physical threats. That is still easy to use and that is still very very flexible. So regarding future use cases that you might have. 
Um, regarding the different models that you want to pick, I would say it's uh, it's really personal test. So the Nano S is our oldest uh, hardware wallet with a screen. So before that, we had a, we had a model without a screen and we had a model with an FC, but I, I won't really speak about that. So the Nano S, I would say, is the cheapest. Uh, Security-wise, it's pretty much equivalent to the Nano X. Um, you might so you might want to get a Nano S if you are using uh, if you don't mind I mean connecting it through a USB cable on your phone for example so if you don't mind having kind of a weird setup where you connect a USB OTG cable uh, while using it on a phone it's okay uh, the Nano X offers a bigger screen so it can be quite useful for for users uh, who might have trouble reading on the, on the smaller screen of the Nano S. Um, it offers a Bluetooth connection, so which is great to connect it uh, to your phone, so either Android or iOS as something, uh, well, in a more natural way, I would say, than when dealing with um, when dealing with an USB OTG cable. And it's slightly more expensive. So today, uh, and it has more memory as well. So I would say depending on, really depending on your use case, the S and the X are, are good options. If you are going to trade on, often on your phone, the X is probably the preferred option. Otherwise, the S is great as well. I think the discussion in regards to the difference sometimes ends up being the difference in the secure element because I think DX has an updated chip. Yes. So the X has an updated chip, so it uses an ST33 while the S is using an ST31. Uh, both are quite equivalent um, security-wise. I mean, the ST33 is probably a little bit, it's a little bit more recent, so it's a little bit, it's even more hardened than the ST31 against physical attacks, but the ST31 has been uh, undefeated so far. So security-wise, one thing that changes um, really between the S and the X is that on the X, the screen and buttons are directly connected to the secure elements. Uh, so that's one attack surface that has been removed. I mean, you don't have an MCU connecting, the, connecting the, in the middle the screen and buttons. Um, but I would say that even on the S and regarding the next, uh, regarding the, I can maybe talk a little bit, so quite um, quickly about the architecture, the security architecture that we have on the S. So on the S, the secure element is executing the applications, and when the secure element wants to display something or to get input from the user, it's talking to an MCU, so which is a non-secure chip, which is connected to the screen and button and reporting the events, uh, reporting the events to the S. So you would think that it's an easy way to attack because if you can run code on the on the S, so which some people did in the past. Uh, you have a way to basically fake what's displayed on the screen, and you have a way to fake uh, user inputs. But when the device boots, uh, the secure element authenticates um, the MCU. So by uh, basically, the MCU is going to send its firmware to the to the secure element, and the secure element the secure element is going to hash the firmware and to verify that it's talking to the right chip. So well, there are ways there are ways to to try to to try to hack that, but I would say it's not really use it's not really easy to do with the new security that you put in place. Um, basically, the secure element is verifying that that the timing is correct. I mean, that the MCU is answering at the at the right time. The, um, the firmware is is asked to the MCU in a random way, so it's hard to reproduce. 
So today, um, with a new strategy that we put in place after the, um, after the, in the recent firmware, I think it was right after 1.3.1, uh, I haven't seen uh, a hack that would exploit that successfully. So I have seen people running code on the, secure, on, the, on the MCU, but I haven't seen people running code on the MCU while still talking to the secure element. So, well, so security-wise, I would say both are pretty much um, pretty, pretty good today. <laughs> Right. So I think that the next question that I have for you is the most difficult of this entire interview, because mm -hmm. I will make you discuss the competition and okay. I'll make you say something nice and something bad about them. And okay. let's begin with the treasure, because this seems to be the mm -hmm. never ending battle between hardware well, wallets. Yeah, well... Ah, it's not. It's not really a battle. I mean, I like. I, I really like a lot of what Trezor is building. I mean, well, I know. I mean, the ethics. I mean, regarding doing everything open source, making sure that you can build your own, uh, pushing people even to build your own. I mean, providing clear uh, instructions on how you can do that is uh, is quite exciting for for hobbyists. I think. Uh, I also like the contribution that they make to different standards. I think they move the space a lot regarding that. And typically with, uh, with Sleep39, for example, so Shamir's secret sharing of, of seeds, uh, it's, um, it's a great way to provide, um, to provide an, uh, an additional backup strategy. Uh, we, plan to, we plan to use it as well in the future. So that, well, inter because interoperability is important as well. And yeah, I think uh, I think the code quality of Trezor is quite uh, impressive as well. I mean, today we are to so we have been doing several physical attacks on Trezor because well because you know when the when the code is uh, when the code is great, uh, it's easy to attack the hardware. I mean, it's easier to attack the hardware, especially in that case. Uh, but uh, yeah, I would say that I would say that what they what they did build I mean, from scratch is uh, is pretty impressive. So your criticism regarding the Trezor. Is that it's easy easy to physically attack? It's well, my so what I do not like, I would say, <laughs> is that yes, today the, the security architecture makes it uh, makes it really easy to physically to physically attack. Yeah, and th there is not really, I mean, there are no really ways uh, you can prevent that. I mean, you you can of course prevent that by having a passphrase. I mean, that uh, that's the typical answer. Uh, problem is, if you have a passphrase, in my opinion, you are completely changing the, the model, I mean, the ease of use of the device. If you have to type something bef before you start using it, um, you are building something completely different. I mean, if you are, it's like a bit if you are telling to people that you are going to get rid of passwords uh, by using a device that needs a stronger password. That, that, that's, that, in my opinion, I mean, if credit cards have been successful in the past, it's also why. Uh, it's also because well, you can just pay by tapping a credit card if it's contactless on a, on a payment terminal, and you would pay in under the in under. 200 milliseconds, I think. So yeah, if you want to, if you, th that's what we are competing against. I mean, as an industry, we are competing against the best possible use cases of the other industries, and we are not competing with each other. We are competing with, uh, we are competing with what happens uh, in, uh, well, with, uh, with, uh, with the existing banking system, for example, with the existing, with, uh, with the existing scenarios. So we have to be better than that. And if you have to enter a passphrase before you can even think about uh, using your device, I think you you destroy a lot of um, a lot of ease uh, a lot of ease of use and a lot of uh, well user experience. What about the Keep Key? It has been around for a few years nowadays. I think yes. it is the most affordable hardware wallet out there, and might be a good solution if you just want mm -hmm. to connect to Electrum and not use the Shapeshift software. 
What do you think about mm -hmm. it? Can you say something nice and something bad about it? So something nice, I like the, the large screen. I think the large screen uh, changes the user experience and you can have, well, of course, a lot more information. Uh, that's what they did in the beginning. Uh, something else I liked is that they, they probably, they probably uh, showed to other people how you could integrate, how you could make a tighter integration with an exchange. Because what they did with Shapeshift is that you could verify your shift on device. So that was getting one step further, I mean, from just displaying simple information. You could display information that related to the service uh, that you are interacting with. And I think that in, it's, it shows, I mean, it shows how hardware wallets could, in the end, provide a better integration into third-party services. So you could have, um, well, you could have a better interaction and you could even, for example, when interacting with an exchange, uh, you could verify what you are, uh, what you are currently doing on the exchange. I mean, you could verify your, you could verify the, the different, the different trades that you are doing directly on device and that would be great. So I think they, they showed that hardware wallet could be used to do that as well. So that's on the, on the parts I like. On the parts I don't like, I mean, I will probably say the same thing as Trezor because they are using the, they are using the same architecture. So security-wise, uh, I don't think it's, uh, well, uh, security-wise, I think there are, there are problems that you can't really overcome with software. So that's my, that's my bigger concern. Right. So what about the newest big player in the market, the cold card? It, it mm -hmm. brings a lot of interesting features. It, it even uses partially signed Bitcoin transactions, which is interesting yes. that you never yes. connect the device to the Internet. But to somebody who is new in the space, it can be very intimidating and difficult to use and unfriendly. I think I criticized it. I mean, I feel like I did your job, but can you say something <laughs> nice about it and something you don't like? No, sure. So, so I think I think cold card is basically catering to the to the cypherpunks. I mean, you can see you can see that with uh, the communication on social media to, to use them. I mean, if you are talking, if you are thinking about using uh, your device for anything else than Bitcoin, basically they don't want to be talking to you. I mean, which is well, I mean, it's a marketing position. That's fine. I mean, if they make money that way, I mean, I'm very happy for them. So that, that's that's fine. Uh, what I like uh, with cold card is, as you said, support of PSBT because it was. Uh, definitely uh, built for PSBT and having something, uh, having a hardware wallet pushing PSBT um, is something great for the, something great for the how it can be integrated. And I think pretty much all of us will be integrating PSBT at some level. So today you can already use PSBT with, a, I would say, um, an external integration. So using the HWY interface. So everybody can interact with PSBT, but uh, cold card show how you can deeply um, design your hardware into exactly supporting PSBT and displaying different PSBT elements. And I think I kind of like the, the looks, I mean, of the cold card as well, because if you are targeting, uh, if you are targeting cypherpunks, uh, it's good to have a device that looks like something very intimidating. So it definitely looks intimidating, and I think it's, uh, I think it's, uh, it's a nice feature. What about the Bitbox O2, which was launched a few months ago? And I think it uses the same secure element as the cold card, but is a lot friendlier. And from the user interface, as far as I could see when I tested it, it offered the user the option to connect to a full node mm -hmm. and also manage UTXOs, which is impressive. And it has batch 32 addresses by default. I mean, I feel they got a lot of stuff right, and they improved on the previous design, 
but we have yet to see how secure it really is on the long term. Yes, so I like, I, I definitely like the form factor uh, of the new beatbox. I think, uh, <coughs> sorry, what they did with, uh, with the touch sliders is, uh, is interesting because it's put on, on different, well, you have some sliders up, you have some sliders down, so you can think about uh, doing, some in, doing some different interactions. For example, when you try to enter your, your memory inside the device, um, it really makes it easier. I mean, by the way, they decided to, they decided to, to design it. Um, well, what else? I mean, and yeah, the set the set of features of the support is uh, is quite great. Uh, what I didn't like, I mean, about uh, Bitbox is well, I would say the security. I, I will speak. I will speak a little bit more later about the security architecture. But of course, yeah, sorry about uh, always saying that what I don't like in uh, in competition is the security architecture. But that's yeah, so that's a bit our <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of the thing that we are that we are pushing for. Um, and well, and regarding regarding cold card, yeah, just remembering, I didn't say what I didn't like about cold card before. So uh, I would say I like the looks and I dislike the looks as well because, well, if you are a new user, I don't think you will be very. I don't think it looks very friendly to you. So I understand. I mean, that even if it's not the main the main part. And technically speaking, one thing I didn't we really, I don't really like about cold card is the usage of micro Python as well because. Um, I noticed that it's a new trend in the in this industry where a lot of people start using MicroPython. Um, I think that it adds a lot of complexity. I mean, to review the code, you don't you don't exactly know. I mean, what uh, what the VM is doing in the background, and as a VM is. It doesn't really serve as the right purpose of a VM, in my opinion, a virtual machine, which is to isolate your applications. You can't really isolate applications in Python. Uh, so MicroPython makes applications easier to write, uh, I would say. Um, but in the end, it makes them also uh, quite harder to understand exactly how the application is running inside. And that, that's, not, um, that's not a good thing for security, in my opinion. Interesting. Uh, I think this is the first time when I hear anything related to, I think you're referring to the operating system of the device. Yeah, yeah. Even if even if they don't really have an operating system, because uh, what I would call an operating system, it's something where you have a clean split uh, between well uh, the main device functionalities and the application. I mean, in all of those devices, uh, it's kind of mixed together. So the firmware is kind of doing everything. And you can't put a clear you can't put a clear split where uh, the device I mean where the device functionality starts and where the application starts. So it's kind of all mixed together. And MicroPython, I mean, using a virtual machine could be a way. I mean, can be a way to do that. Uh, but typically, MicroPython doesn't let you do that just because the way Python is um, defined. I mean, you can't have separated scopes uh, in Python. So if, for example, you have a malicious application that tries to modify um, the way your device is going to handle the PIN, let's say, uh, it will be able to do that just because MicroPython and Python will not offer any kind of software protection against that. This is definitely interesting. And this is why I'm happy that I get to talk to an engineer as opposed to a marketing person. <laughs> Well, yeah, you you can find a marketing person interested in uh, interested in MicroPython as well. But yeah. <laughs> okay, so you spoke about the firmware, and this is the point where I have to ask that question, which gets asked all the time. Which part <laughs> of the Ledger software gets open source, and which part doesn't, and why do people usually criticize it for 
making you trust the company and the device a lot more than the Trezor, for example? Yeah, so uh, I would say that today the, the approach that we have chosen when, when decided to, to work on a smart card chip is that, well, we took the good parts of it. The good parts of it is the security, and we took the bad parts of it. And the, the bad part of it is that you have to sign a vendor NDAs, uh, vendor, vendor NDA, sorry, where basically the chip data sheet is under the NDA. So in what you are writing, uh, in the code that you are sharing, you can't share anything that would either uh, reveal how the chip is working or you you don't want to you don't want to share code that will help people get this information. So uh, it's a bit tricky because you don't want to show this information yourself, and you don't want to provide third parties with a way to extract this information. So you have to think about that when you are designing an application for a secure element. So today, uh, what we did with and that's one of the that's one of the reasons why we have this uh, operating system architecture where we split the OS from the applications is that the OS today is closed source and the applications are open source because uh, the applications are using the operating system as a service. So they are basically running. Uh, at some point, they need to run a specific operation. So they are making a system call. The system call will go back to the operating system. The operating system will do its stuff and will return the result to the applications. And well, unfortunately, today the cryptographic library is part of the operating system because, um, for performance reasons, uh, in the end, the secure element is working at a pretty low speed. I mean, compared to a general microcontroller, so secure element will be working at, I would say, something like 20 to 40 megahertz. And while the Trezor is uh, and other general microcontrollers are more operating in the 100 megahertz range. And so, in order to perform fast computations when doing, um, when doing, um, for example, an ECDSA signatures, they will use a coprocessor. And here you see the problem is that since the chip data sheet is under NDA, uh, the design of the micro, the design of the cryptographic accelerator on the secure elements is also under NDA. So that's part. That's, so that's a one. That's a big part of what you can't reveal. And the way, the way we plan to work around that is that we are rewriting constantly the operating system in order to split um, better the parts. So it's very hard to, to do it in, in one go. I mean, that's why it's taking us a lot of time to do that. Uh, but we want to end in an architecture where we can share most of the code of the operating system and we will just have um, a black box, so the, which, will be, which will be a binary blob that you load, uh, which will basically map the ship data sheet. Uh, but everything else will be open source in the, uh, I don't like to say in the long run, because that's something, that, that's something that we are really trying to improve, but it's very hard to know uh, exactly when we will be able to release that. So I, I'm pretty confident we will be able to do more uh, to release more things related to crypto to the crypto libraries this year uh, because we have found some ways to, to split it already. Um, but yeah, well, we so today the operating system is closed, so that's uh, that's the way things are, and the applications the applications are open. So you can you can say that well that's the design that makes it hard to test things. Um, but in the end, I mean, testing the applications is pretty, and even testing the operating system is uh, pretty possible. I mean, we had researchers uh, reporting bugs on the operating system already because 
Uh, if you want to test, I mean, you can still test it as a black box. So you can basically run uh, some code. You can see, you can try to interact with the operating system as an application would do. Uh, you can try to override the securities of the operating system. And basically, you can verify that, well, either you can't override them, and that's good, I mean, from a security point of view, or you can override them. You can make a nice bug report to us, and then we're going to fix it. Uh, but, well, we are in a state uh, with uh, the last certification that we passed where the code has been reviewed, I mean, by two or three, I mean, three different third parties uh, right now. So the code, which is not open, I mean, of the operating system, and yeah, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't found uh, any escalation, any escalation process where applications could compromise the operating system uh, in the in the recent version of the firmware. So well, and even I mean, com considering what people are doing in other industries, uh, a lot of people are testing uh, things like that. I mean, using uh, using black box testing because. Um, if you consider if you consider hardware in general, I mean hardware can always be seen as a as a black box at some point. I mean even if your code is fully open source, your code will rely on the chip and sometimes on part of the chip which are not documented. So taking into example, I mean all the other hardware wallets working on open source, uh, I mean having an open source code but working on general purpose chips, um, they are using security features of those chips uh, for their own protection. Because one of the key parts, uh, one of the key features of a hardware wallet is that you can't flash your own code. So you can maybe do it uh, after getting the authorization of the bootloader, or after getting the authorization of some other parts. But in the end, I mean, you don't have access to the GTAG, you can't flash directly your code into um, the microcontroller. So you are still relying on the microcontroller for security, and unfortunately, those parts are usually not documented. Because, well, even on general, on general purpose microcontrollers, uh, parts are not, some parts are still kept secret by the manufacturer. So they give you the data sheet, but they are not going to tell you exactly how the data sheet is implemented. And that's when things start to get tricky, because if you think that you are protected by just writing open source code, uh, first, you don't exactly know how that code is going to run on your specific device. Uh, so that's, I mean, if we want to think about, for example, timing attacks, um, today, if you want to if you want to evaluate a cryptographic algorithm uh, running on a specific chip, it's much easier to actually run it, to take some measurements, to see uh, how the code is behaving on the, on the chip rather than by reading the source code. I mean, it should just read the source code instead of running the, the code and observing how it's running on the hardware, you are going to miss a lot of good things, and you are going to miss uh, a lot of hints regarding the regarding the security of the code. So, so that's that's one. So that's the reason why I think that well, even if you are even if you are uh, fully open source, you still need to have the black box approach to testing. Okay, uh, I feel like this explanation was a lot more than I expected, and I'm happy that I got it. <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> Okay, so uh, to my knowledge, I think the Ledger was the first hardware wallet to implement the secure element chip in its design. Mm -hmm. And since then, companies like Coldcard and Bitbox have also added secure elements in their hardware wallets. So what do you think about this trend to add secure elements? Is it the best approach? And what do you think about the specific choice of secure elements in the cold card and in the bitbox? Mm -hmm. 
So I think I think it's a good idea to have chips which are more dedicated to, to physical protection of assets. I mean, in all cases, because well, as as we've seen, I mean, if you try to put secrets on an NCM32 on 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 a general purpose, I would say microcontroller. They are quite easy to extract. And, but the problem is that in the industry, we don't really have a standard to say what's a secure element and what exactly is a secure element. So in the end, secure element gets more into, well, a marketing term, so that you are speaking about marketing people but, than anything else. So I, I would like maybe to, to specify, to, to, to speak a little bit more about the definition that we are using when we say secure element. And that's why uh, I will stop saying secure element, I think, as of today. <laughs> I will say that we are using a smart card chip uh, because the definition of the smart card in the smart card industry, what we call a secure element, is a smart card chip. Uh, that could come in different form factors. So, well, the most common form factor of the smart card chip is what you have on your credit card. So you can look at it, you can see the different contacts, and well, it looks like a smart card. Uh, but you can put it into a different package. I mean, you can put it as something that you that you solder into something else. You can virtualize it into into a CPU, for example, if you want. But in the end, it's a smart card chip. And what is exactly a smart card chip? So I'm going to get, uh, I'm going to to dive a little bit more into what it brings and what is interesting for us. So first, it's something that is going to be quite hardened against physical attacks. So that's one characteristic that will be shared by many chips. Uh, it will give you a route of trust down to the manufacturer. So I think that's something as well extremely important. And it will give you the possibility to run code in your chip. So why do I think that, well, why do we think that all those parts are important? So first, hardening against physical attacks is quite easy to understand. I mean, it makes it hard to extract secrets. It makes it hard to spy on the chip. And as well, it makes it hard to temper. Because let's say you want to temper a chip. Uh, you had some very uh, interesting talks about that at the latest um, Chaos Congress, so regarding regarding chip, um, how you could compromise a chip. So uh, one of the talk was from Bunny, I mean, um, called, um, I don't exactly remember the name of the talk, but it was like open source is not enough if you want to, if you want to properly, well, if you want to properly protect your hardware. So I, I would, I would, I would um, quite, uh, I would say that everybody should watch this talk if you are interested in that topic. And Bunny has done a lot of good stuff for open hardware. So, uh, well, uh, I was digressing a bit. Uh, so the second part of what the smart card chip is going to bring is uh, is a root of trust. So the root of trust will be a manufacturer secret that is built in and that clearly identifies the origin of the of the chip. So since the chip is good at keeping secret, uh, you know that this root of trust will prove uh, that your chip is coming from a legitimate vendor. And well, that, that's something that has been used in, um, in critical industries that I mentioned before. Um, so the life cycle of the chip is clearly controlled and audited. And that's a very big difference um, compared to a general purpose chip, because here you know that you have a secret that you can trace back to the origin. And you know that the upsack uh, of the manufacturer is quite strong as well, because if the secret is leaking, basically the entire reputation goes down the drain. And I mean, not only for crypto, but for, well, for passports, for states, uh, for other things. So, well, that's a good thing in using it that are used by governments is that in the end, I mean, you know what kind of security they want to do because they want to protect themselves. So they're not going to, well, they're not going to hack themselves, I mean, if you, if you, see, if you see the point. And then it's possible to run code in the chip. And I think that's, well, that's also critically important because if you combine that with a root of trust, uh, it means that you can give strong guarantees to an observer that 
what is running exactly in the chip. I mean, if you don't have that, it's pretty hard to say, okay, this is the code that I built, this is the code that I put in the chip, and this thing could temper the code in the middle. Um, I was talking about uh, the bootloader architecture, for example, on a, on a generic micro on a generic microcontroller. Uh, your code, when you load your code on a generic microcontroller, you are going through a bootloader. Um, I mean, regarding hardware wallets, you are going through a bootloader which is designed by the manufacturer of the hardware wallet. So if this bootloader is lying to you, in the end, even if you build the code yourself, you don't really know what's going to be loaded on the, on the hardware wallet. And unfortunately, since the chip is not made uh, to protect you against that, you have an issue. So coming back to, to smart card chips, if you have all those properties, so harden, if you are hardened against physical attacks, if you have a root of trust, and if you can run code in the chip, you can provide very high guarantees uh, regarding what you are doing, and you can use these features to, to save time, I would say, as well when implementing some, some security measures. Because um, what we do, I mean, when, we, when you load a new firmware into your Ledger device, you are connecting back to Ledger, to Ledger servers. Ledger servers will verify that the secret that's inside your chip is actually, well, something that your chip is legitimate, so that's how we verify that, well, you are talking to a legitimate ledger device, and you have a health check that you can perform um, that you can perform at different stages of the life of the device, and it's a good way to, well, it's a good way to increase your security. And I will say that a little bit, a little bit down the road, I mean, we want, we want to explore new ways to work on, with multi-signatures, and especially threshold signatures, and, and MPC, and I mean, that kind of key, um, different ways to split keys that we can, that we can imagine. And being able to verify the code that you are running into the chip and running in a in a trusted environment is a way to is a way to save time because those operations are usually very very costly performance wise. And if you can make some assumptions about trusting the code that is run by different parties, you well you end up you end up just uh, having I mean having code which can actually run in a in a time which is interesting for the user. Um, so going back now to what um, Coldcard and Bitbox are using, so they are using an ATACC, um, which is sold by, a, by the manufacturer as a secure element. I think that the part which is a bit confusing is that the ATACC will just provide a hardening against physical attacks. I mean, you don't really have a root of trust you can at least use for your own code because you can't run code into the chip. So in the end, you have all your business logic running in a, running in a non-secure element uh, that you can't really tie um, to the chip. Because if your code is not running in the chip, you can't really demonstrate anything about your code. Because then the relationship between both is, uh, is quite weak. Um, so another thing that is quite weird about the TECC is that um, it's protecting keys, but you don't really know how, because it's not. I mean, it has never been certified. So I'm not saying that certification is a silver bullet, I mean, providing you uh, confidence about what happens, but certification is giving you uh, um, a list of what the manufacturer tried to do when protecting the device. So for example, you know that the manufacturer tried to protect against uh, different kind of glitching because uh, when you can read the certification, I mean, all certifications are public, so certification will refer um, to a list of uh, things that are actually certified. Uh, if we are talking about common criteria certifications, you have a production profile which is linked to the certification. So this is the information that the certification is giving you. So the certification is not telling you that the chip is good. Uh, the certification is telling you, okay, the manufacturer tested against those attacks. 
And for the ATECC, since it didn't really go into a certification, well, uh, you know that the chip is hardened, but you don't really know how so that's the reason why. Uh, I, I don't think those chips have, has, have had a proven history uh, in other industries before. And well, their exact security is yet to be demonstrated. I think I lost you for like 30 seconds there, but I hope that the recording is fine in the end. Yep. <laughs> anyway, this thought just came to me because I know that Ledger takes security very seriously. And at some point, I, I suppose there will, there will be inevitably some sort of secondhand market for hardware wallets and users <laughs> resetting their devices and selling them on eBay or something. But at this point, do you think it's safe to buy a Ledger on eBay and securely use it if, if it has been reset? If it's an S, uh, if it's an S, you might want to verify that people didn't put you some extra hardware inside. So I don't think that's going to be, I don't think that's going to be the most common attack. Uh, but sorry, are you still hearing me? Just checking. Oh, I, I hear you well. Oh, okay, okay, sorry, <laughs> because I didn't. Uh, yeah, so I think I think I think if you verify, I think if you verify the chip is exactly, I mean, how the um, how the device is wired. So if you do that on eBay, I would I would probably say that well, you should do that. I mean, if you order it and you think the device looks to have been tampered with, um, you might want to verify that everything is correct before uh, before starting store before storing money on it. Okay. Because I spoke to the Shift Crypto Bitbox people and they were like, no, that's a terrible idea and we don't think that's the way to go. And it's interesting. I don't think, I don't think that's the way to go. Yeah, I don't think that's the way to go either, but you can't really prevent people from doing it. So in the end, you want to provide some, I mean, you want to provide some advices because you will still have people wanting to do that. So yeah. You... I suppose there are also people who get a treasure or a ledger at first and they learn how to use the hardware wallet and then maybe that they have higher privacy expectations and switch to the cold card and they're going to have like a ledger lying around and the question is can they still sell it and make some money on it and possibly give it to somebody securely give it to somebody who can trust that it's not going to be a malevolent piece of hardware or should they just keep it because hardware wallets are single-use items, just like toothbrushes? So, <laughs> yeah, it's a good, that's a good comparison. So, I, I don't think. I mean, I don't think they are single-use, but I think I think that you can always find new use cases for for a hardware wallet. I mean, typically, uh, if you are moving to a cold card because some because at some point you decided you are a hardcore bitcoiner and you don't want anything else than Bitcoin to touch your device, uh, that's I mean, that's a decision you have the right to take. Uh, I would say regarding privacy, it's more related to well to the software that you are using to connect to hardware wallet. So the hardware wallet doesn't really play uh, a lot of, I mean, the hardware wallet doesn't do a lot of things regarding privacy, so it's more the software that you connect to it. Uh, but you have a lot of uses for a hardware wallet, I mean, if you decide to keep it. I mean, typically, uh, you, um, using Fido, you can use your hardware wallet as a password manager, you can use your hardware wallet to connect to your SSH server, so you have plenty of reasons to keep your hardware wallet, I would say. Uh, if you decide to sell it, 
Um, we are probably the manufacturers that took the most, uh, well, we, we, we took care, I mean, by having the architecture that we have, um, of making sure that it's hard to tamper with the device. So I'm not saying that it's impossible to tamper with the device, because if you want to solder new stuff into your, we have no protection against that, uh, but it's significantly harder than to tamper any other device, because if I want to take, I mean, just taking an example, if I want to tamper um, another devices based on a general microcontroller, uh, even if you have, I mean, even if you are using a secret chip, um, another secret chip in the middle, I just need to tamper with the bootloader. If I can somehow rewrite the bootloader and reship the device with a different bootloader, I can make you believe that the device is completely genuine. Uh, you wouldn't be able to do boot of trust. And then, yeah, then, then you, can, you can make fake devices that look exactly uh, like the original one, I mean, without even opening the device. So for, for other manufacturers, I would say, um, the, second hand, the second hand issue is a more harder to tackle than, than with us, because to, to mess with the device, you really need to open it and you really need to, to solder new things inside the device. Another question that I have for you, and I'm not sure if it's fitting, given how the operating system and the applications are handled on the ledger, which is very different mm -hmm. from other hardware wallets. I, I have seen that with the Trezor and the cold card and the Bitbox, there is a Bitcoin-only model that they released. And they say that through this minimalistic software approach, they reduce the attack, the attack surface. But in the case of the ledger, you can choose which application you want to install. So if you want to have a yes. Bitcoin-only device, you only install the Bitcoin application. Yeah, so, yeah, so, so but, that's pretty much that's pretty much the case. Um, and the, the only thing is that, well, if you look at the source code of the Bitcoin application, you'll see that to save space, uh, you have some branches in the applications that relate uh, to other Bitcoin forks. I mean, typically, well, some points that are maybe not well known, I mean, by, by Bitcoiners only, but you have plenty of Bitcoin forks. I mean, even uh, typically Zcash is initially a Bitcoin fork, so you might not be aware of it. I mean, if you never dig into the question. So if you look at the Bitcoin code, you would say that it is a uh, quote contaminated quote uh, by some other coins. <laughs> So if, I mean, that's your case, you might want to think that you want even something, well, better than that for your Bitcoin. So you might change the Bitcoin application to only contain code that's related to Bitcoin, then load it and with better guarantees, I would say, than, than, well, than other manufacturers. Right. One of the downsides that I found in the Ledger devices during my testing was that it's a lot more difficult to set up a multi-sig with Electrum. Mm -hmm. And are there any efforts that you are doing in this direction? And will there be a multi-sig option that you will be implementing in Ledger Live, which is your desktop application? So, yeah, I mean, we, we are definitely, we are definitely um, starting efforts to rewrite the way the Bitcoin application is um, is, is working regarding multi-sig. So uh, the current the current application maybe for for well a little bit of history, it, it was written for first generation hardware uh, which had two kilobytes of RAM. So in two kilobytes of RAM you can't do much, 
And the way the way I decided to implement multi-sig on that is that, well, I would just display the information. I would not try to be smart and understand, I mean, what the transaction is doing, and I will just sign. <laughs> In the end, I mean, I, I thought that signing was, uh, signing was the right thing to do for hardware wallet. Um, so I understand that, well, this is not, this is definitely not satisfactory enough if you want to, if you want to build a complex um, multi-sig setup. And the vision I have in the, for the next rewrite of the Bitcoin application that I am currently working on is that we will have more complex uh, Bitcoin application in the future. So I think that, well, the multi-sig is one thing, then we will have taproots, then we will have maths, then we will have other features, uh, which make me consider maybe a little bit Bitcoin, like, you know, with a, with a Unix model in mind. So, I mean, um, if you look at the Unix model, you have a lot of small processes, I mean, that do one thing, that do it well, and that can be piped uh, to another process. And I would like to have the same design for um, the next Bitcoin application, so the Bitcoin application, you will have one Bitcoin application which is responsible for just doing a Bitcoin transaction signing. Uh, you would have a sub-application which is responsible for displaying the address in the multisig. Um, you would have an application which is responsible for designing what a multisig template is. Um, so, for example, using Miniscript or Descriptors, um, you could say, okay, I'm going to sign using this model. Uh, then I'm going to bind this model inside the device. So either by generating a specific application specifically for that, or by writing the profile into committing the profile to Flash, for example. And then you would say, okay, I'm going to sign using something that always looks like this. I mean, at, at least for this instance. And well, and then the device can display additional information. The problem is that today it's difficult um, to display additional information regarding a multi-sig setup without assuming a lot of things. So you can assume that your keys are sorted. Uh, you can assume that your change is always going to look like well, a given, a given format, uh, which happens to be followed by Electron, but other people might not follow this format. And I think that by lacking, I mean, the, by lacking the, the flexibility of exactly describing what you are going to sign, um, you can you can break some you can break some use cases. So let's say that uh, I have the choice to make between signing and well and maybe displaying a little bit more information but taking assumptions. Uh, I chose not to make assumptions in the first version of the of the application. Um, before I had enough uh, enough power, I mean, in the device and well, the new application model in order to describe what you're signing without making those assumptions. Now, speaking of Electrum, because we have mentioned it, yeah, what do you think about people who buy a Ledger device and choose not to use the Ledger Live software and go for for Electrum personal server or for Wasabi or for Shapeshift or other? platforms that have native support for the ledger devices. Do you have any kind of advice for them? Is it reckless to pursue this path? Oh, it's absolutely not reckless. So the point, I mean, the way we are creating security devices and we definitely support people using them in any possible setup. I mean, the device is meant to be, the device itself is meant to be safe. Um, so today, I mean, I would say to those people using um, third-party uh, third party wallets to connect to, to connect their Ledger device, well, please do. Uh, Ledger Life is designed to provide the most user-friendly experience, but of course we can't cater to, to all users. Uh, you mentioned multisig previously. Uh, the way I want to handle multisig in, uh, in Ledger Live I mean, in the future, 
uh, will very much likely be done in an MPC kind of way. So in order to in order to support multi-signature between different coins. Um, so typically, well, if you want a multi-signature which is on-chain Bitcoin and so on. Don't use Ledger Life because that's not that's not something that we will plan to offer. Um, and if we if you think a little bit, I mean, if you go back in history, the way we designed the Hover Wallet initially, we had no um, we had absolutely no support for for we we didn't have our own wallet. So I started the integration by pushing um, implementations. Well, the first wallet was Green Address. Uh, I think the second one no. Technically, the first one was CryptoKit, so it was a Chrome extension, so now it disappeared. But, uh, the second one was Green Address, the third one was Electrum. So I definitely support, I mean, um, third-party wallets using Ledger features. I think if we want to speak about specifically some wallets, I think, well, Electrum will provide you more 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 fine-grained coin control. I mean, also also multi-sig, as you said. Um, Lightning, um, because Electrum is going to support Lightning in the next version. And today, if you want to open a Lightning channel with your hardware wallet, um, you can definitely do it from Electrum. So it's uh, it's also a great way to use the wallet. Uh, Wasabi is going to provide more privacy. Um, we don't support CoinJoin today, but that's something we are definitely interested to support. And as an extension to the device, I mean, as an extension to the Bitcoin application I mentioned before, uh, that I want to consider Bitcoin as a set of processes that I connect together. Uh, CoinJoin could be one of those processes. And we, we are definitely quite interested to provide features. I mean, even if those features are not supported in live, uh, we support the, the software wallet ecosystem and we, we definitely support the wallets connecting to us. So let's do a short recap because during the interview, you have mentioned lots of features that may get added to Ledger devices in the future. And I think you mentioned PSBT, mm -hmm. you mentioned Shamir's secret mm -hmm. backup. And sharing backups, yeah. Yeah. And also you just mentioned coin joins mm -hmm. as something in which you're looking. And also better multi-sigs. What else is next for Ledger? Mm, so uh, we have well the I would say for different, we have different ways of looking at that. So for depending if you are um, a user or a developer, we might have, I might have different answers for that. Um, so for users, I would say we want to make, our goal is to make really using crypto easier and more widespread. Um, so for that, we want to, well, we, we the, the, the goal is to compete with um, with the standards that we have in other industries. So we want to make crypto super easy to use. So we want to have, uh, typically, some paying with crypto should be as easy as doing a contactless payment. And that's the reason why we're using secure elements. Um, so regarding Bitcoin specifically, um, we want to make Bitcoin more customizable. So by being more customizable, I mean the multi-sig profiles. Uh, we want um, also, well, it's not directly Bitcoin related, but slightly. Uh, we will be announcing a liquid integration as well. Liquid, liquid integration is, um, is already working, so that's a, that's a good thing for traders. Um, we want to think about how Lightning can be, can be protected by more can be more protected by hardware wallets. I mean, mostly on the server side. So if you are if you are holding a node, um, so the, I know that's a lot of features. I think that given the architecture that we have, um, some of those features can be developed by third-party application developers. Um, here I'm thinking um, specifically about CoinJoin. I think CoinJoin is something that can be uh, easily done by a third-party. I mean, once. Um, the Bitcoin application is very, is um, is rewritten. So once we have the new Bitcoin application, that's something that would be pretty easy to use for for someone else. 
Um, Propose, um, I would say we want to have a much more open platform in the future. So that that's, we already started doing that with um, the operating system and well with the with the crypto library. We want to push that further. So we want to have most parts of the operating system open. And well, a hot topic for us, I mean, for developers in 2020 will be Rust as well. Um, so we want people to be able to write Rust application into their hardware wallets, and we want to to drive this ecosystem forward. But I think that that's a great way to write applications which are a little bit more, uh, well, which are a little bit more controlled, I mean, than, than just writing C applications. Um, if we take a look at the, at the future, more generally speaking, uh, we keep iterating on different form factors. So right now we are not really we are not really decided, but we are looking at things that could be bigger. We are looking at things that could be smaller. Uh, we are also looking at things that could be more integrated. I mean, especially in my team, I'm always looking at phones and wondering how we could make phones more secure. And typically, if we manage to run the, if we manage to run our operating system into a secure element inside a phone, and well, an integrated secure element, so um, a non-physical secure element in the CPU, I would say, um, that would be the best possible integration if we manage to have a proper, of course, uh, I.O. with that, so in order to have a um, right display to the user. So we are, we are really thinking, um, we are thinking as Ledger as a platform. So Ledger is a platform providing a secure operating system on which you can build different kind of applications. Um, now that, I mean, we have three business units uh, for Ledger, so we are not only considering hardware wallets, um, we are also running the Vault, uh, for which is, uh, well, a solution that enables people to build their own uh, custodian chip solutions, so which is uh, basically uh, bigger hardware wallets in a completely different form factor. But that's something that we are, something that I have been developing a lot in the, in the past year. And we have an IoT division on which we use the secure elements that we designed and we try to connect it to, to other things. So the general idea is that, for example, if you want to build a device that's collecting um, data from a water supply or something else and you want to, you want to, to, to provide this data securely, um, you can use a secure element and you can use our operating system from, um, to do that. So um, you might wonder, I mean, what, uh, why I'm talking about that in a, in a Bitcoin-related Bitcoin podcast, but the idea of looking at, the, looking at the company as a platform is that every time we do something that looks interesting in, uh, in, one, of the, in one of those business units, we can bring it back. And typically we learned uh, about how to do more, maybe more, um, better backups, I mean, for users as, um, as we were designing the vault. And that's something we can push back to the, that's something we can push back to the consumer devices at some point. Uh, when working on the IoT devices, we made a lot of performance improvements uh, on the device. We need to do that because we are operating in an environment where we don't have a lot of power. Um, so in that case, you need to, you need to run, I mean, your code much more efficiently. Uh, we are bringing that back on the consumer devices in order to sign faster. So that, that's really the way we are looking at the company. So even if we are not only doing hardware wallets, well, I mean, every part that we do contribute to the same operating system and we push this operating system forward. I feel like I have exhausted my questions at this point, but I will just take one from ALK2019 on Twitter, who wants to know something more specific mm -hmm. that maybe we haven't touched very clearly. How does Ledger Manager recognize a fake Ledger? Mm -hmm. 
So Ledger Manager uh, will ask, um, basically, so having a secure chip, uh, Ledger Manager identifies um, that root of trust. I mean, Ledger Manager will ask the secure chip to sign a nonce. So we'll ask um, the secure chip to perform a signature given code, which is given the secret that is put by the manufacturer, and we'll verify that the secure element is answering properly. So basically, Ledger Manager is verifying that the secure element is the secure element is the right secure element. But that's kind of, I mean, the validation which is performed by by Ledger Manager. Okay, so Mr. BTC Chip on Twitter. By the way, everyone should follow you just for these insights and to better understand <laughs> Bitcoin security. I feel like during the last the last hour and maybe it was 70 minutes or something, but I've learned a lot and this is definitely useful. And the series that I'm doing is meant to provide more information for users who get into this whole hardware wallet business and they want to understand what they should buy and what is right for them. And I'm very grateful that you provided all of this information. And I'm pr pretty sure that at some point somebody will find it and will say, oh, this is exactly what I needed. And it, it offers all the explanations <laughs> that I was expecting. And during this interview, I, I took notes regarding timestamps. So if somebody wants to just skip to that part about I don't know, multi-sig and ledger, they can just do it and listen to the part where you talk about it or about microcontrollers and secure elements. Yeah. So thank you very much. Okay, so thanks. Yeah, and thanks a lot. And thanks for hosting me. And as you said, I think you are providing a very useful service to the community. So please uh, keep doing that. Uh, keep I mean, digging into other parts of uh, other parts of Bitcoin. I mean, if you if you want to host a new podcast, and I don't know, like typically the different multi-signature solutions that can be provided, uh, that, that's great. So please keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> oh yeah, well, actually, I was thinking that each season from now on is going to have a team, like an album, like the Dark Side of the Moon. You know, you listen to it and from <laughs> yeah. start to finish. It may have different songs, but they just tie together in a greater team. And that's something that I want to pursue. And this season I've had Keep Key, I've had Bitbox, I've had Lazy Ninja, who was able to find vulnerabilities in the cold card and in the Bitbox 02. I've had you from Ledger. And next month I will be having Slush from Slush Pool and also Trezor. So, so far it's very accomplished in this regard because I was able to get the best people to talk about the product. And possibly NVK will give in in the end because he was kind of skeptical. He was like, oh, well, why should I join this podcast? <laughs> you have already written and he was kind of unhappy about the coverage that he got in Bitcoin Magazine specifically when I wrote that it's easier to break the cold card than to break the ledger. And he was like, no, but it's made from, I don't know which components he tried to describe. And I said, yeah, but the screen is easier to smash with a hammer because it's larger, it has a greater attack surface. If you want to destroy it, it's easier to destroy the cold card. And he was unhappy. He was like, oh, but I tested it with guns and stuff like that. 
Okay, but well, I would say I would say so. Maybe if I if he needs to be to be if he needs to be on courage, I would say it's always great uh, to have a way to push for. I mean, to give your message and to give especially more explanations to the users because in the end, uh, users need to to understand what they are buying. So well. Providing a platform where you can discuss about that, I mean, which is not doing some blind promotion of the product, is um, is great. So yeah, please come, and everybody should everybody should join. <laughs> yeah, and also I like to think that this is like the golden age of hardware wallets, because you have all all of these new products which take open source code and then they experiment with some kind of design, and you have hackers. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and we didn't talk about yeah, we didn't talk too much about that. But there are some people doing some some pretty wild experiments on that. I mean, especially the Trezor code uh, is being run on platforms that I don't think I don't think people would think running that on secure enclaves or on, on, on TEEs. So secure enclaves are another set of well security devices that we didn't talk about, but they are basically um, some semi software, semi hardware security solution that you can use on more complex um, CPUs. So typically, SGX is a security enclave on Intel. Uh, Trust Zone is a security enclave on ARM. So that's a way to that's a way to protect, I would say, your your secrets from malware, so not from physical attacks. So, oh yeah, I agree. And all of these efforts that companies make help the end user get better security. So yeah. it might be kind of a harsh competition, especially in the marketing departments where they try to emphasize on the qualities and they possibly maximize the impact of hacks that happen. And they say, oh, that device, you shouldn't buy it because it was hacked. But at the end of the day, all of this feedback that we get helps design better products and it's the Bitcoiners who get better security. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the way that's the way open source is working, and as uh, as I mean, the people from Chip Crypto say, uh, the rising tide is lifting all boats. I mean, there's definitely the case. There's definitely the case in a in a new industry. I mean, we get more reviews, we get more comments. Uh, the code is reused by other people. We can comment on we can comment on different stuff, and that's well. I mean, that's the way we improve as an industry. Yeah, uh, I very much agree with that. I'm very grateful that you gave me this time to talk so yeah no problem <laughs> pleasure is mine <laughs> btc chip on twitter follow him you i absolutely have no reason to ignore his insights and if you want to look more of his work you can just look up nicholas Bacca b-a-c-c-a on whichever search engine you prefer it's better to not use google anymore <laughs> for reasons that might regard the establishment of the new <laughs> Skynet. But yeah, thank you very much. I'm not sure if I have anything else to add. And thanks for hosting me again. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not tweeting much, so I won't spam you if you follow me. And I'm not even tweeting in French, so no problem. And again, thank you. And well, that's it. <laughs> Let's hear a few words from the show's sponsors. LXMI is a European cryptocurrency exchange whose name is inspired by Lakshmi, the Hindu goddess of wealth, good fortune, and prosperity. 
It's one of the regulated and legal cryptocurrency exchanges. On LXMI, you can buy bitcoins with most fiat currencies and you can also do trading with top altcoins. They follow the Not Your Keys, Not Your Bitcoins philosophy with their integrated non-custodial wallet which helps you manage your own private keys. So if you're into trading, then you don't have to worry about having your crypto frozen by whatever political decisions, since you're empowered to hold and move your coins whenever you wish. It's great to have new players like LXMI that respect your financial sovereignty. LXMI is launching in 2020, and for more information, please check out lxmi.io. If you're not into trading, it's recommended to move your coins to a hardware wallet or some other form of cold storage, and in this episode, you're about to find out why. Please keep in mind that this is just an ad for a sponsor of the show. It's not meant to serve as financial advice, and you're responsible to do your own research before buying anything and act according to your own decisions. Embrace your financial sovereignty with agency and precaution. Femex is a Bitcoin exchange with derivative trading options, which focuses on speed, robustness, and maximum uptime. Built by former Morgan Stanley executives, it manages to bring simple and accessible Bitcoin trading. In 2020, Femex will also add S&P 500 stocks, stock indexes, Forex, commodities, and more. Sign up today at Femex.com slash bonus and receive a bonus of up to $72. Please keep in mind that this is just an ad for a sponsor of the show. It's not meant to serve as financial advice. and You're responsible to do your own research before buying anything and act according to your own decisions. Embrace your financial sovereignty with agency and precaution.